Pine Desert of Northern New Mexico. This is Circle for Original Thinking. I'm your host, Glenn Aparicio Perry. Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers, an open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each episode, we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions. We ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day. Political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses, and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our goal is to recreate a whole and sacred America and world, a new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum, from the many to the one, and this time not leave anyone out. Join us as we embark on this quest. Native Americans in professional healing professions may creatively incorporate Native ways in their work, but the path is not easy. The same is true for those coming from a Western background that realize there is something lacking in modern medicine and are attracted to Native ways of healing. Western and Native approaches to healing may seem incompatible. Linear mechanical, biological, or genetic causes versus interdependent community and natural world imbalances. But there is a way to integrate them, to see and walk in two worlds, not easily, not without pushback perhaps, but uh, I think there is a way. Our two guests, one native, one non-native, have both been powerfully influenced and transformed by indigenous wisdom and also other ways of knowing. And they've done the work to integrate and implement a more holistic vision of medicine. Join us as we explore how to integrate healing traditions on this episode of Circle for Original Thinking. Now I want to introduce uh, our guests, and we'll introduce them. I, I could introduce them with a gigantic bio, but I have shortened it because they have a, they've done a lot in their lifetimes, but we're just going to get into the conversation. So Louis Mel Madrona uh, is also an MD, graduated from Stanford University School of Medicine, where he trained in family medicine, psychiatry, and clinical psychology. He has been on the faculties of several medical schools, most recently as an associate professor of family medicine at the University of New England. He continues to work with Aboriginal communities to develop uniquely Aboriginal styles of healing and healthcare for use in those communities. He is the author of Coyote Medicine, Coyote Healing, and Coyote Wisdom, a trilogy of books that explore what Native culture has to offer to the modern world. He has also written Narrative Medicine, Healing the Mind Through the Power of Story, among other books. His most recent book is with Barbara Mainguy, and it's called Remapping Your Mind, The Neuroscience of Self-Transformation Through Story. And Lewis currently works with the Wabanaki Public Health and Wellness, which serves the five tribes of Maine. And you can hear his near-weekly blog on futurehealth.org. Welcome, Lewis. David Kopez, also an MD of Polish, Welsh, and Northern European descent, uh, works as a psychiatrist in primary care mental health integration at Puget Sound Veteran Affairs in Seattle. He is a national education champion with the VA Office of Patient-Centered Care and Cultural Transformation. David is an assistant professor of University of Washington and is certified through the American Boards of Psychiatry and Neurology, Integrative and Holistic Medicine, and Integrative Medicine. He did his training through the University of Illinois and has worked in Illinois, Nebraska, Washington State, and New Zealand. David is the author of Rehumanizing Medicine, a Holistic Framework for Transforming Yourself, Your Culture, and the Practice of Medicine. And with co-author Joseph Rael, also known as Beautiful Painted Arrow, he wrote Walking the Medicine Wheel, 
healing trauma and PTSD, and uh, becoming medicine, pathways of initiation into a living spirituality. Uh, and he also has written Becoming Who You Are, uh, Beautiful Painted Arrows, Life and Lessons. And I might mention that the, the book Becoming Medicine, the forward is written by Lewis. So that was uh, uh, one of the reasons I thought it would be good to bring you gentlemen together uh, on this podcast. So welcome. How's everybody doing today? Doing okay? Yeah, great to be here with you. Okay, excellent. Yeah. So, so the, the first question I want to ask you, Toby, especially because, Lewis, I, I love your emphasis on stories. I want to ask uh, you first, perhaps, but then both of you. You know, I often ask this of people, actually. what What is the thread that runs through your own life story and perhaps unites your own life story? I suppose I've been trying to figure out how people get well for a really long time. And I'm not sure I figured it out yet, but um, that's probably the thread is, is how is it that people get sick and some of them, some of the time, get, get well? That's mm -hmm. really the question that I've pursued. Very good. Good, succinct answer. <laughs> and and uh, David, what what is the thread that runs through your life story? Yeah, when I think back to, you know, childhood and just we, we grew up with a lot of animals. My mom raised dogs and and just this idea of like caring, caring for others, you know, caring for life related to that, I think is has been an interest in healing and then related to like what Lewis said too, I think, you know, the sort of question or issue, I feel like I've worked with again and again and again, and still have never quite figured it out. And, it, and so maybe it's a paradoxical mystery or something that you just keep going deeper and deeper into it is sort of this idea of initiation, transformational learning, um, you know, just this question, how do people take suffering in life and somehow grow from it? Mm. Hmm. Hmm. Did you come up with an answer? <laughs> I've written, I've written a few, but, but they don't stick. You know, I think you have to come up with it in the, in the moment again. You know, that's the thing. It has to be in the, in the moment. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I understand. I mean, I was listening to uh, an Arlo Guthrie album when mm -hmm. he was, uh, it's a, I think a 2013 album, and he was talking about the first time he ever met uh, Lead, Lead Belly, you know, um, and he, he was uh, two years old. And he says he has this memory of him... Uh, of uh, of him, uh, you know, right by his leg, and it's with the clearest, clearest memory. And he said, and then he said, "Why is it that somebody remembers that?" Mm -hmm. And there's a long pause, and he says, "I don't have an answer, but uh, <laughs> just wondering." <laughs> uh, some, yeah, some of the, I think it was uh, uh, Krishnamurti who said that the best questions to ask are the ones that are impossible to answer. So well, I'm going to try to ask some of them like <laughs> today. So, no, but I think some of, sometimes you can, uh, let's maybe reframe the word answer into uh, it's address. You know, we have to address these things and there's something learned in the, in considering them. So, uh, you know, my next question is actually, uh, Directly uh, from uh, Lewis, your book, Coyote Medicine, a question you asked yourself at one point, but it's for both of you. And is it possible to practice spiritual medicine within the confines of the medical system and make a living from it? You know, that's <laughs> a really good question. 
And I think it's always possible because at, at the least common denominator, one can communicate compassion. One can, even if silently, offer prayers for people. Mm. One can treat people with respect and dignity. Um, so, so yes, and there are settings in which one can do a lot more. And, um, you know, in the setting in which I practice now, we we're free to do ceremony. Mm. <clears throat> Not all of our clients want ceremony. And uh, a good chunk of them want benzodiazepines. <laughs> okay. so, so we have to negotiate. Um, even in an indigenous clinical context, how much spiritual medicine can be tolerated. And uh, so that, I mean, that's my attempt at an answer. I'll be interested to hear Dave's. Yeah, Dave, you're, same question. Is it possible to practice spiritual medicine within the confines of the medical system and make a living from it? I would, I mean, there's kind of several different levels of the answer and threads. And I would say, yes, just the fact that, you know, Lewis and I are here and, and are still practicing medicine and have gone through different systems. And um, I've often felt a pull to go outside the system sometimes so that I can almost like a hero's journey type of thing or healer's journey. There's times where I just have to leave an institution and sort of follow my own path. And there's times where I get pulled back in, into institutions. And interestingly enough, at this point in my life, I feel that I'm both inside and outside the institution at the same time, rather than having to go back and forth. And it's in some ways it's more rewarding. In other ways, it's, it's a lot more difficult because the, the feeling of belonging and um, not belonging are kind of ever present at the same time. Another way of answering the question is to say it's not possible to practice medicine without spirituality. It's possible to be a technician, to be a protocol manager without spirituality, but it's not actually possible to be a healer without some form of spirituality. And yet spirituality is such a huge thing. It can take so many different, um, different forms, such as, you know, I've, I've used a hero's journey uh, class with veterans, and that's a kind of using creativity and the arts, and I would say spirituality, to transform suffering into something meaningful. Um, now, the problem with burnout, I'm very interested in part of my work is, you know, working with staff with burnout and compassion fatigue, and I've started to call that soul loss. Because really, that seems what happens is people lose connection to some vital essence within themselves, and they burn out, um, and they, they no longer have compassion, they no longer have the fire within them. And so, you know, what is the process of rekindling that fire? And I, I've been drawing a lot on just that idea of soul loss and soul recovery which is ancient, you know, it goes back to the Greeks as well as in indigenous um, societies, that there are times in life that we become unwell. And the thing with like burnout is it's a type of soul sickness, you know, it's a type of spiritual sickness in a sense. It's not a physical illness, although it can lead to some. Mm. Um, mm. That's very, I want to jump in a little bit. I mean, it's very interesting what you're saying. And I noticed in your book, Becoming Medicine, too, you also point to the hero's journey as a uh, um, as providing some guideposts. But, you know, I had always thought of the hero's journey as a very Western thing, you know, coming from Joseph Campbell, this, this separation. And uh, uh, and I'm not 100 percent sure that that. That I want to turn it, uh, turn this question back to uh, uh, Lewis, actually, because I'm not 100 percent sure that how much that resonates in, in native communities, um, because, um, 
it seems almost a Western idea of going, you know, separating from origin, you know, in the Iliad, the, the Odyssey, you know, and going out on this, this heroic journey. It's sometimes associated with colonialism even, you know, but then, but then, it, but then it, there is this return, but you're using it in a very specific way. So, um, I want to give you an opportunity to say a little bit more about that. Then we'll go to Lewis to see what he feels about it. So I think that Joseph Campbell kind of developed it off of concepts of anthropologists, again, who are Westerners, but studying other cultures like Victor Turner. Um, and, uh, Oh, I forget who it was before, before Victor Turner, <clears throat> the uh, Dutch guy wrote about the rites of passage, I think. Um, and um, so they are ideas, Western ideas, but in a way it's trying to make sense. And I think what Campbell was trying to do was find the unitary story both beneath all stories. And we could say, well, that's a modernist, um, universalist perspective and that it's um, colonizing because it's, it's incorporating and absorbing the stories of the world through a, a Western framework. Um, but in, in working with Joseph Rael and in trying to make sense of how you go from a state that you're in into a state of suffering and then to learn from that suffering and come back into uh, a, a state through transformation and to return back. I mean, that also fits in a way with like what Joseph talks about with intentional suffering, that you're going to have suffering in your life one way or another. If through kind of ritual and ceremony, you take on some of that suffering willingly, then it's easier to grow from it rather than to suffer it as a victim. But I see that just that larger kind of uh, human experience of how do we grow from suffering is one that we could characterize as a form of initiation. And then one of the ways that we talk about initiation in Western society, what Joseph Campbell did was he said, you know, we've lost all our rituals. So I'm going to tell you a story that can be our new ritual. And so in Western society, we can say, Oh my gosh, I'm going through a real hero's journey with this. You won't believe what my boss did. Or, you know, I've got to quit my job or, you know, I've got a parent who's dying and I'm going through this hero's journey now. So um, those are some of my thoughts. But I do. I am always it's a very good question and I'm not always comfortable with my answers. So I'd be curious to hear Lewis's perspective. OK, I want to come back to Lewis and 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 you can address both the, this idea about whether the hero's journey works as a as a as a story for uh, uh, in your experience with uh, Native Americans or for yourself. Um, and then also, if you want to add, you know, I, I, I want to get into the heart of the conversation today about how we balance these different ways of knowing, you know, because indigenous ways of knowing um, uh, and uh, uh, seem to be much more about uh, radical interconnection, community, uh, healing through a balancing with all our relations and, and, and the Western way of knowing or the Western way of medicine seems to be much more about uh, healing within one physical body and trying to trace that linear causality. So uh, uh, I turn it to you, Lewis. I think the hero's journey is a metaphor for human adaptation. So, um, you know, you're, you're in a state of homeostasis. Everything is is pretty groovy, you know, things are trucking along and something comes along to perturb the system. So there's an irritation, there's a disturbance and you're forced to figure out a new level of adaptation. And, and whether the journey is internal or external, um, you have to find a new homeostasis. And we could talk about that as, as healing or as um, adaptation or as evolution or, you know, there's lots of ways to talk about it. But it's, it's 
something that all biological and social systems do. So it's, you know, it's not limited to Greeks, Romans, or or other similar characters. And um, certainly in indigenous stories, there's there's lots of heroic journeys. There's um, there's a really fun story about um, I think it's Wolverine. It's a it's a main story. Wolverine realizes that he's he's living with his parents and there's no one else around. And all of these main stories start off once upon a time in the middle of the forest. And so there they are in the middle of the forest. And his his mother says, well, you need to go find a wife. And so he sets out on a journey to find a wife. He runs into Glooskap. Glooskap is the cultural hero of Maine. And uh, Glooskap gives him th some things to do. And when he does them, he's rewarded with uh, the advice he needs to get through the dangers on the journey to the place where he can find a wife. And, um, you know, there's so much more to this story than that. But uh, eventually, you know, he, he saves the day, is rewarded with a wife, uh, comes back home, and lives happily for at least another couple days. Mm. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, what about in your in your medical practice? Um, how have you been able to navigate pushback uh, from uh, colleagues or the general public when you're when you're proposing uh, complementary ways of healing. I'm not sure I like the word alternative, but more complementary ways of healing uh, for your patients. How, how have you been able to navigate that? And I, I, I ask you, Lewis, well, first. I, I, I haven't always. Um, the you know, once upon a time, I was at the University of Pittsburgh, and I was the direct medical director of the Center for Complementary Medicine. And um, we were thriving. And the approach that we took was to find out which patients no one wanted to see. And then we went around to the specialty practices, and we said, we'd like to, we'd like to get referrals for the patients that you don't want to see. So who were, you know, fibromyalgia, chronic, you know, you can imagine the kind of diagnoses we were getting. And everyone was happy because they left the specialists alone and they were getting better. And this, this was going on for four years. And then the dean changed. Mm. And the new dean, it was, it was interesting because the new dean had never seen a patient. He'd spent his whole career in virology. And he decided to shut us down because we weren't, as he said, evidence-based. And um, the, the whole community came out to support us. The medical staff at the hospital, they said, you can't get rid of these guys. They take care of the people we don't want to see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good story. But he shut us down anyway, and so I had to move. Oh. But, um, and he, he, he turned it into a, a pain doc clinic with anesthesiologists. So, so sometimes you get the bear and sometimes the bear gets you. Mm. 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 Uh, David uh, or Dave, I know you want uh, the in your book with Joseph Rael. Um, you explored so many things. I, I think that book is, as I was mentioning to you, is really ten books in one. Um, and one of the things you explored was about how uh, 
uh, the, what Joseph would call Wama Chi, you know, breath matter movement. And you, you explored how healing processes are all in motion all the time. So how do you, how do you even talk to other colleagues if you, if you have to use nouns and, 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 uh, uh, diagnosis, prognosis, and, and have to pin everything down within that language. How, how can you express what is underneath there, what you're, what you're seeking? Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes what I'll do is I'll appeal back to the ancient kind of roots of medicine as, as having the art and science of medicine. And I think what's happened now is we've really just focused on um, supercharging the science of medicine, and we often forget the art of medicine. So, you know, what Lewis ran into, this idea of evidence-based medicine, is really kind of a new dogma that excludes anything that doesn't fit within a box. And so I try and come up, like, to play with these terms even, and to think about, in addition to evidence-based medicine, we need human-based medicine medicine that just like looks at the realities of what it is to be human or care-based medicine. How can we develop medicine that's based on, on caring and compassion um, as well as doing the, the evidence-based medicine. And there's a few different frameworks like Joseph Rael will talk about ordinary reality and non-ordinary reality. And in a way with a vision, you leave ordinary reality, you go into non-ordinary reality it changes your reality in some way. And then you, your journey back is into trying to bring that vision back into ordinary reality so that it transforms yourself and it brings life into, into mm. yourself as well as the culture. Um, Darwin talked about lumpers and splitters, naturalists who would look at two, two sparrows, for instance, say those are two different species because they're different. And someone else would talk about those are the same species because they're similar. And Lewis, Lewis talks about two-eyed seeing too, you know? So I think that's, it, there's a joke that I heard on the radio one time. That's, um, <laughs> there's two kinds of people, the kind of people who think there's two kinds of people and all the rest. <laughs> so I think it's, it's almost that larger paradigm that you're trying to struggle with, whether people are trying to um, split things out and divide things out, and this has evidence and that doesn't have evidence. And then there's all the people who are like, no, no, let's bring it all together. It all kind of fits together. And, you know, yeah, bring, bring the science and the evidence, but, you know, let's invite somebody else to the party too. Uh, Lewis, can you pick, please add? Yeah, I think there's a whole politics of evidence that um, those in power decide what is evidence and how is evidence produced. And typically it's excluded indigenous knowledge, which is the whole point of two-eyed seeing or Edoaptamunk in um, the Mi'kmaq language. Um, you know, it's become so narrow that that um, those in power in medicine have taken a, a methodology, which is good for comparing two drugs, and and have tried to apply it to everything, and to the exclusion of stories, to the exclusion of qualitative research. Um, and, and it's something that I think we have to, to fight against because it, it results in over-treatment. And there's, there's some fairly conventional epidemiologists now who, are, who have become quite critical of everything being based on the randomized controlled trial because what happens is the sickest people control the trial results and you end up with uh, treating 80% of the people when only 20% need the treatment. And um, just a quick example, lest we get on down a rabbit hole that I could go on forever about. 
But one quick example. So in in the algorithm that comes from the randomized control trial, if you're a man and you're over age 63, you should be on a high intensity statin. The, the number needed to treat to prevent one cardiovascular. So if you treat to a statin, 12 of them will develop diabetes from the statin, and 40 of them will stop exercising or moving very much from the statin. And so the number needed to harm is actually lower than the number needed to treat. And yet the randomized controlled trial says as its result that anyone over 63 who's male should be on one of these drugs. Mm. So, um, so that's my example of why it, the kinds of evidence that we're producing are, is not, are not necessarily good evidence. That's fascinating. And also something I've noticed that I've written about a lot is, uh, is there's this modern society is, is, uh, is likely to believe anything that is produced uh, more recently than, than a study that happened before. Um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, once they say a new study, uh, you know, and, 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 and I think both of you, we don't need to go into all the, all the problems, but there's, there's problems in a lot of studies with their design or who's, funding it or, or you have it there's a lot of politics involved right i mean and uh uh and it seems like the new is generally always believed unless it's too radical like i, I just heard actually from my doctor <laughs> who also is a holistic doctor dr stephen weiss and uh uh, now in Santa Fe, he used to be in Albuquerque. Um, and, and, uh, he was considering, uh, giving me, uh, niacin, um, to, uh, uh, lower, uh, you know, my bad cholesterol or, or whatever, or raise the good cholesterol. I, I'm not even sure which. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, we were just about to do that. And then apparently there's a study that just came out. That shows that uh, men over 60 who, uh, uh, who haven't taken statins are better not to have. I mean, I would never take statins, actually, but, you know, but I was considering niacin. So it's, it's, uh, uh, how do you... How do you deal with that evidence even, you know, with your patients or with your colleagues when, when studies change? How, how, do you, how do you deal with that incoming information? Well, I think one tree does not make a forest. Mm. And, and so one study does not make the truth. And also, I think we have to bring in um, people to the equation, and I think this is what Dave was talking about, that, that we have to hear people's stories and we have to find out how they feel about their lives and treatments that they could undergo, um, what their beliefs are, um, maybe even learn about, you know, their relatives who lived long and well and their relatives who didn't and and begin to personalize the medicine more to the to the stories that that come from that person's family and that person's community and we're so reductionistic in medicine that it's it's almost nauseating yeah. it, it reminds me of, there was a, a famous study of a community italian american community in eastern Pennsylvania and they did everything wrong according to the epidemiologists and they lived long and healthy and there came a point 
at which their children started moving away and they stopped living long and healthy and and their risk factors caught up with them and smoking suddenly became dangerous for them and um, being overweight and eating lots and lots of pasta suddenly became dangerous for them and they they developed heart disease and diabetes when they didn't have it before their lifestyle hadn't changed wow. what it changed was that the social fabric of the extended family and community was falling apart it was disintegrating before their eyes and their children left and there was no longer this prospect of of growing old with your grandchildren hmm. you know aging in place that's beautiful that's a beautiful story so you're it really, it doesn't have to be in a Native American community, but when you have a community that is in balance um, and harmony and uh, they have uh, intergenerational uh, uh, nurturance, they tend to be healthier. This is, this is uh, regardless of some of these specifics that Western medicine seems to focus on all the time. It makes a lot of sense. It makes total sense to me. I mean, I, uh, I know uh, or knew of, he's passed on the spirit world now, but David Pete, who was in Pari, Italy, a little tiny village that uh, people had uh, been living in the same place for uh, centuries and very familiar with the land and, and what they grew there. <laughs> and it was a coherent community, but it also started to... Just like you were speaking about, Lewis, the children started to become enticed to move away and things are shifting, not for the better. Um, so it's it's very difficult. So, we, you know, I, so what does it really mean to heal is what I'm or, or to be healthy as uh, I throw it back to you, Dave. What does it mean to be healthy? Again, I think it's an ongoing practice. Um, it's not something you do and are, are done with, but it's really kind of a, a way of life. But it, it, there's this kind of thing within Lewis's story, too, of like, you ask a doctor, how would you be healthy? And you say, well, don't drink so much red wine. Don't smoke so much. Don't eat so much pasta. But if you're in a great community that's so supportive, all of those things are part of the liveliness of the community, and there's actually health in that. So, I mean, the if we break down what's where does the word health come from, it, it goes back to roots that have to do with wholeness and holiness. And so healing is when something has become separated or broken apart, and then figuring out how do you reconnect those pieces, how do you bring that back into um a sense of of wholeness. Um, there's a story about Chenritzig, the Buddha Chenritzig, who vowed to alleviate the suffering of all beings. And so Chenritzig, you know, practiced and worked for for years and years and years to alleviate suffering, and then looked around and saw there was more suffering than ever. And so, having broken the vow, part of the vow was, you know if I can't alleviate all suffering, I'll burst into a thousand pieces. And the Buddha Amitabha comes up and says, wow, that was a really noble vow. I mean, it was impractical. You're never going to get rid of all suffering, but you know, let's put you back together and let's give you a thousand hands to better touch suffering and a thousand eyes to better see suffering. And so the healing is really, building in the fragmentation for a in a way it's almost like a, a greater state of complexity um, rather than than the old state that broke apart rebuilding the old state into a greater state of complexity and this is what's missing in medicine a lot is we're trying to get back to a static thing the, of the past a lot of medicine is like this is out of whack let's get it back to where it was rather than saying this has changed let's look at your your larger life and see how things are changing in your larger life and see how maybe we can incorporate this change 
uh, almost like in a martial arts thing where energy comes toward you and you figure out a way to work with that energy rather than just to try and stop it and force it back. Um, mm. Lewis, what, what, you, what would you say to that question? Well, you know, I think I agree with Dave that it's about, you know, the word, the closest word in Lakota would be Wichozani, which means harmony and balance. And, and it's interesting because um, we can't live forever, and yet we can be in harmony and balance until we die. And so, so there's a way in which healing and physical health are not necessarily the same. Mm. And um, sometimes they are, you know, and, and, you know, we talk about the the, the medicine circle, which is a, a symbol for the horizon, you know, that, that we want to be in balance with spirit, spirituality, emotion, community, physical body. Um, but we know that we can't live forever. So, so I think the confusion that modern medicine makes is it's all physical. And, and the goal is to live forever. Mm. That's very good. So for both of you, what is the optimal way to die? What is the optimal way to die? Well, my great, my great grandmother said you should die healthy so you can party on the other side. <laughs> and, and so you, you can die healthy. Well, she, she believed that you could. Now, we don't believe that in medicine because we always have to have a cause, you know, a physical cause for everything. Mm-hmm. But um, I suppose those people who drop dead, you could say, you know, if you weren't tainted by modern medicine, you could say they died healthy. Um, it's possible. I mean, I, I almost believe because, you know, I, I had the dubious distinction of setting up a uh, radio interview for uh, Leon Secretario, grandfather Leon Secretario, the head man of the Canyoncito Band of Navajo, someone who used to participate in the Language of Spirit Dialogues along with Joseph Rael. Um, and uh, on September, I think it was September 25th of 2008, and the show was on death and dying and you can find it on YouTube. Harlan Macasato was the host and it was a beautiful show. Also, uh, I was friends with Harlan and he asked me about people who could speak the, he had a Western, uh, doctor who was doing a study on, uh, on, uh, the physical, uh, act of dying on the show also. And, uh, and then there was uh, Leroy Little Bear on as well. Uh, Leon spoke about dying as in Leon had gone to essentially to the other side a year and a half earlier, had a massive stroke and gone to the other side and had visitations with, uh, uh, people in the spirit world and then come back and regained his memory and speech by going to sacred sites and having them speak to him again. Um, he was an amazing man and, uh, he said that when we die, that the the energy that's been unfolding in a in a sunwise direction um, just uh, goes back the other way. It goes back the other way. It reverses, and 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 that's what he had experienced when he had had the stroke. But the interesting thing about this to me is that three days later he died, and he was apparently healthy. <laughs> At the time, or apparently, you know, there was no clear, you know, he didn't seem sick, you know, um, and uh, and he also died um, ex- on September 28th. And so there was uh, annual ceremonies that were conducted every year between October 1st through 4th that honored the ancestors and uh, at, a, at their sacred grounds. 
And so he died in a way that people were already en route to go to those ceremonies, which turned out to be a memorial for him that year. But then every year since, when they go to the sacred grounds, it's uh, the anniversary of his death is concurrent with those ceremonies connecting to the ancestors. So I don't know if that's an example of what you're saying. And he also died as a very young man. He died 65 years old, and I'm sure he, they can, he did have diabetes, and there's other causes we could probably uh, attribute, and I'm sure Western doctors would. But I think something else was at work there. So maybe that's what you're talking about, Lewis, that there, there's some kind of uh, conspiring with spirit to find the, the right time to die? It's a great mystery. I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, Dave, do you have something to add there? I'll have to get back to you on that, Clint. Okay. Okay. Well, the last question I have for you both, really, you know, I, I've been thinking about, um, you know, how do we change the story or is there a way to change the story of modern medicine? Because people are pretty fixated on this idea that we're, that we're making progress all the time, that, that the medicine of today is better than the medicine 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But I remember reading this article in a newspaper about 10 years ago where it said, we're going to have new hospitals. You know, they're going to have uh, lots of windows, fresh air and sunlight. And my first thought is, oh, that's like a sanitarium in the Middle Ages. So, so uh, you know, where they did understand that there was a relationship between, like Dave was saying earlier, between wholeness, holiness, and health. So, I mean, is there a way that we can change the story of just linear progress to medicine because I, I, I at least in my opinion it seems like it's a kind of a dangerous myth to believe in um, or if you wish if you feel that there's a lot of truth to the idea that they're making a lot of progress please uh, stand up for that <laughs> and I <laughs> it's funny you mentioned 10 years ago because there was this study 10 years ago that came out that said given that you live to the age of five your life expectation is the same today as it was in 1905 mm -hmm. and which suggests that most of our success has been up you know dealing with young children yes but i you know i want to say a couple words about what we're doing at wabanaki sure public wellness because we are trying to figure out how to do medicine um, from both an indigenous and a um, non-indigenous perspective, two-eyed seeing. And um, I think it can be done. You know, we're doing it. And part of how we can do it is that we're, we're not trying to make profit. So, and we have grants, you know, which helps. Um, and I can see people for as long as I want. So I'm, I don't have to, I'm not constrained to 15 minute visits. Um, we're working on a, building an urban Indian health center. And our vision is to have a central, a central gathering space instead of a waiting room. Because you don't come to wait, you come to gather. And, and we don't, you know, want um, people behind glass walls who check you in, you know, and then send you to the corner to sit and wait. We want interactive dialogue going on continually, you know, with, with the opportunities for the visits being around the, in the periphery. And um, so we want to change the vision, even architecturally, you know, of how this is done. And there's, there's two places in the world who are doing this, so I don't want to claim that we're original. 
There's Thunderbird House in Winnipeg, and there's an Anishinaabe Health Center uh, whose name I can't pronounce because I don't speak Anishinaabe in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and so uh, which is smaller than Winnipeg. So people are people are playing with these ideas, and I think you know the difficulty is that our healthcare system is really good at what it does, which is to generate a profit. It's not very good at keeping people healthy or getting them healthy because that's not what it's designed to do. Mm. You know, and, and if you look at what is it designed to do, it does it very well. Mm. So, you know, we have to change the design. Mm. Beautiful. And how do people find out more about your work, Lewis? What is your website? Well, we have um, the usual three W's, <laughs> mel-madrona.com, and we have um, three W's dot coyote-institute.org. And um, the place where I work has a website, uh, Wabanaki Public Health and Wellness. And uh, we have a journal called Etuoptimunk and uh, the Journal of Two-Eyed Seeing. And uh -huh. the first two just came out. So I invite people to, to look for our journal. Awesome. And, uh, as you mentioned, there's the YouTube video podcasts and the Spotify audio podcasts and uh, all that crazy stuff that we just keep pumping out. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I turn it back to to you, Dave, and tell us about what you've been able to do in in your position in the uh, primary care mental health integration at Puget Sound. So I'll tell you something that I'm part of. It's not not mine in any way, but. Um, one of the reasons I came back to VA was I heard that there was an initiative to include complementary and integrative health in, in the VA system. And since 2012, there's been this Office of Patient-Centered Care and Cultural Transformation. So one of the kind of mottos that they have is to shift from saying, what's the matter with you to what matters to you? So this idea of whole health, there's a circle of health, which, um, you know, is, is kind of this universal healing symbol that the circle that brings the pieces together and there's, you know, body and surroundings and diet and sleep and, and um, relationships, all those sort of things you might expect there. There's also spirit and soul. So we have kind of permission and encouragement to talk with veterans about spirit and soul because it's part of this whole health movement. So part of my job as a national education champion is going around to different VAs and teaching different courses on um, how to use the idea of whole health. And because it's not disease focused, it's uh, wellness focused, it applies equally to clients as well as to staff. So we'll often kind of balance our teaching of like, here's how you use it for yourself. Now that you know how to use it for yourself, here's how you can use it with veterans. So the movement, you know, this whole health initiative with office patient-centered care and cultural transformation has really, um, you know, it's persisted. It's grown um, 18 VAs across the country, got three to five million dollars to kind of develop as pilot sites to develop these different um, modalities uh, to bring in like peer support specialists, um, health coaches, as well as to have Tai Chi and yoga and acupuncture and meditation. Um, even there was a, a, a study going on at RVA. Uh, by one of the, the GI docs on loving kindness meditation, teaching veterans loving kindness meditation. And at first I thought, wow, that, that's going to be a tough sell. But then I thought, well, that's exactly what they need. You know, after, after going to war, war training for war is kind of the opposite of loving kindness in a way. So loving kindness seems the perfect antidote to war. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's invigorating to be part of this model, but this is why I say I feel both inside and outside of the system. When I'm with my whole health people, 
you know, we all think in similar ways and we're all trying to bring this transformation into the system. But then when you talk with service line chiefs and section chiefs and directors, you know, they're trying to see, well, is this some just new VA kind of initiative that we can ignore? Mm. Uh, or, or a common thing, two common misunderstandings. This is about complementary and integrative health. So this is about somebody doing acupuncture or meditation or something. But we say, no, those, those come out of a philosophy of, of care and relationship. And so it's this cultural transformation piece. The other thing is leadership will sometimes think, well, this is something that, um, healthcare workers do to veterans. Um, mm. instead of thinking, no, this is something, a way that everybody interacts with everyone else, how they care for themselves and how they care for the whole institution. So I think the dilemma at this point, though, is we've got this, um, you know, there's there's a ton of information available through the VA website for if you just um, put in a search engine, VA whole health. There's a, a, a ton of information there for practitioners and veterans and free resources, all sorts of different things. Um, but I think the dilemma now is, once this has become an office and an institution within an institution, is will the cultural transformation be that whole health transforms the VA or that the VA transforms whole health? And we become a siloed um, kind of ineffective institution or, or an ineffective kind of department within the institution. And I think about this even, Lewis, with your story about the, the um, clinic in um, Pennsylvania of this idea, you know, Jerry Arbuckle, who's a Catholic priest and an anthropologist, talks about the need for refounding, that institutions periodically lose touch with their, their founding principles. And sometimes the very success of an institution can be the thing that then creates its downfall. So unless you can have a refounding pathway that happens where someone goes back to the original spirit of the institution and can kind of give birth again to or rebirth for the institution to grow into a new uh, metamorphosis in the, in the present situation, um, the institution can become irrelevant or, or be swept aside. So you really need ceremonies of renewal. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Um, what you were saying about the, the VA, um, you know, it brought to mind two things. One, I wonder if you've read the book by James Hillman, A Terrible Love of War. Uh, that, that's a good one. Um, and uh, the the other thing is, you know, the uh, veterans can, you said loving kindness is not ordinarily thought about, but bonding is, you know, bond, you know, bonding, you know, the people, people in the military do make very close bonds. So, yeah. Um, so, Dave, uh, how can people find out about uh, your work? Uh, oh. with? Sure. Yeah, I've got a, a website, davidcopaz.com. Um, and I've also got a blog called Being Fully Human. Oh, well, that's a question I would like to ask for another day. You know, what does it mean to be human? We don't have quite enough time to go into that, but that's uh, that was opened up. Um, I, I have a lot of admiration, respect for both of you. This has really been a beautiful dialogue. Thank you very much for the work you do in the world. Um, thank you for your deep thoughts, your compassion, your kindness, and your persistence and perseverance in, in creating a pathway. And I hope and pray that you'll be an example for others to come along and, uh, 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 and follow this pathway as we go into the future, because you really are uh, great explorers, adventurers, and you've been successful in what you're doing. So thank you so much for being on the circle for original thinking today. This program is made possible in part by Select Books, Waterside Publications, BizGenics, and the Ecology Prime Media Channel. Executive producer, Kenichi Sugihara. Native flute music by Orlando Secatero from The Pathways CD. Liberty Song by artist Ron Crowder, written by Ron Crowder, Jim Casey, and Danny Casey. 
Post-production editing by Kenichi Sugihara. The Circle for Original Thinking is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of contemporary thought in order to remember and restore heart-centered wisdom for humanity and all our relations on Earth. Follow the Circle for Original Thinking podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Listen Notes, or wherever podcasts are normally heard. For more information, go to originalthinking.us or originalpolitics.us, and you can you can find and purchase my books, Original Thinking, Original Politics. There. Thank you for listening, and until until next time, many blessings of good health and well-being to all.